Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to save and support the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Judith Larner Lowry is the plants woman behind Larner Seeds, seeds for the California landscape, restoring California's landscapes one garden at a time. Founded in 1977 and growing strong, Larner Seeds is based in Bolinas, California. Judith is also the author of Gardening with a Wild Heart and the Landscaping Ideas of Jays, as well as several books on the edible plants of California. Judith and I spoke in the heat of summer 2021, me in my garden and her in the home recording studio of Jeffrey Manson, the programming director at KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California, where Cultivating Place is heard weekly. Enjoy. So Judith, as a really notable seedswoman of our horticultural times and my specific horticultural place, your work has inspired me for so many years. I am really honored to speak with you today. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. In a career that spans so many milestones along that time period, If you had a mission statement for your work as it has evolved into right now, Judith, what would that mission statement be? Every day is different. (laughs) So (laughs) we do a lot of different things and the proportion of them shifts around. Um, I think at the moment we've kind of, we are really focusing on the forbs, the annual and perennial wildflowers that we just see disappearing at such a rapid rate and um, making sure that the seed is available. That feels very compelling to me at the moment. Um, that there's always new things. There's always new challenges and new possibilities. That's why I love this work so much. You said we. Can you give just a brief description of what you mean when you say we? I include my staff of three brilliant young people, women. I include my my husband and my dog. Could you give us a little bit of history on the people and places and plants yes. that grew you into a woman for whom the the learning about and sharing about and conserving of seed and native plants and native plant ecosystems would become a really motivating and organizing value. I I was born in, and grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and um, I think it maybe it started because my dad was a camp director and I spent many early years at at camp. And that's where I learned to walk. And I have a kind of a deep memory of a place in the Ozarks um, of an opening in a, in a bunch of green trees. <laughs> that's what I remember. You know, my mother had a garden and she was always teasing me when I started this business because she could never get me to help her in her garden. But I, I felt, I knew she had it covered. 
And I do remember one pro school project, you know, where I took a flat of seeds home and they sprouted almost immediately. And the, the feeling of that, the thrill of that, something from little, something major from something as small as a seed is, is still with me. I always wanted to live on a farm. I was always begging my dad to buy a farm. Um, he had little interest. But um, I think one of the major influences in my youth was that my first husband and I did the, we were part of the Back to the Land movement in the 60s. And we bought some very marginal land in um, upstate New York. We had no idea how cold it got. And um, <laughs> we took down barns and we built our house. And um, then we, I started, you know, seriously uh, growing vegetables to, because our goal was self-sufficiency, which we never remotely approached. We had, you know, we had to learn all the skills from scratch. We didn't have much family support. We really didn't know anything. And so some of the old timers helped us out. And now I think maybe I'm an old timer. <laughs> so trying to be self-sufficient and looking at plants to help us, that was, a, and I started drawing them at that time. So I ended up in, in California with my current husband and um, was just like half a mile from one of California's many stellar community colleges where they had an ornamental horticulture program. And I started taking that and I learned a lot. And I also learned what I didn't like. You know, Sunset Magazine really dominated horticulture in those days from the 50s and 60s. And I, it was not a compatible or comfortable program for me, though I was very grateful for it. I mean, it cost $3 a quarter. How could I complain? And um, I did learn a lot. And it was starting to make me uncomfortable. But about that time, I went to a meeting of a strange organization, something about rare fruit plants. I met Craig Drayman, the proprietor of Redwood City Seed Company. And uh, I showed him some of my drawings, and he wanted to, me to do some drawings for his catalog. And he asked me if I wanted to apprentice or just work with him. And so I did for about a year. He is a brilliant an eccentric person. At some point, he said to me, you know, I really think you need to start your own seed company. Craig was instrumental in providing encouragement and directional advice to Judith. First, he recommended she reach out to Gerda Eisenberg, founder of Yerba Buena Nursery, a large California native plant nursery. Judith would go on to work with Gerda at Yerba Buena for eight years before relocating to Bolinas to focus on the continued establishment of her own Larner Seeds. Now a well-known native plant seed company, I asked her more about her initial attraction to seeds. Well, seeds are like jewels. I mean, they're all different, all unique. They have all have a different ripening sequence. Some of them dehiss, which just means splitting along a seam, like the way that lupin seeds do. Some seeds need pre-germination treatment and others don't. And some of the pre-germination treatments kind of scared me, but I made myself do it because it involves sulfuric acid. And, you know, in later years, we... We stopped doing that and used uh, really bad coffee instead, 
and that, that seemed to work. And sometimes we lit flats on fire if they needed that in order to germinate. Talk about those early years and the kinds of things you were doing and maybe the kinds of plants you were propagating at that time. I think the first thing I grew, which was something that needed a double pre-germination treatment, was redbud. At least at the time, we thought it needed that. We thought that it needed a, a soak in water that had just boiled for 10 minutes and then to be cold stratified in this refrigerator for two or three months and then sown. That's for plants that live in cold climates and you're trying to grow it in a warm climate. So you're duplicating winter in the refrigerator. I remember when that germinated, I was so proud and so surprised and so relieved. <laughs> but establishing a native plant seed company was about more than sourcing and growing the seed. Judith talks about some of the obstacles with recruiting gardeners to her native plant mission. I had learned a lot at Yerba Buena, and uh, one of the things that Gerda loved was her, what she called her, her demonstration garden. Mm-hmm. And so I started one as well, but it was also a growing ground for seeds. So everything kind of was serving a double purpose. And I started to get entranced by the coastal dune and scrub plants and um, basically falling in love with the whole area. But I was very disappointed at how little no one was, seemed to be interested in native plants. There wasn't a single native plant garden that I knew of then. And, and when I started kind of gingerly putting my ideas forth, I met with a lot of hostility. Hmm. And what do you think that hostility was about? Maybe they thought I was telling them they were doing the wrong thing because uh, growing non-natives. And at the time, I wasn't totally sure. I knew that I felt that these plants must have co-evolved um, in complex ways. And every time I found an anecdote or a story or was told something by an ornithologist from Point Reyes Bird Observatory, I just glommed onto it. But I knew that I didn't know enough. And meeting with this negativity really encouraged me to go deeper. As a mail order business in its earliest forms, Lernercy, did it have a catalog? That was probably 77, and um, it would have been, it was a one page catalog. And I was aiming a lot at, at other nurseries mm -hmm. then. Yep. Not so much at homeowners or home gardeners. That came later. When I started to feel that what gardeners were doing was mattered quite a bit. And it was not always positive by any means. I mean, uh, something 85% of invasive species were introduced by gardeners. So something to think about. I got involved right away in a broom removal project. And some people did not like that called, well, I've been called a lot of names. I won't say them on the air. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> because I'd have to go bleep, bleep, bleep. Right. <laughs> Um, I remember that I really um, enjoyed growing the eriogonums, which they called the buckwheats. And then in later years, I found out how extremely important they were as host plants 
for different butterflies, especially when I started visiting my daughter in LA and every beach seemed to have its own uh, pair of um, an Eriogonum species with a butterfly, like, like the um, El Segundo blue. They were usually blues. And in one situation where the LA airport was kind of forced to create a kind of a sanctuary for this butterfly, they planted the wrong Eriogonum and it became a disaster. So that is an amazing example of how careful we have to be and how specific these relationships are. It is hard not to, to notice that um, you have been hard at this for 40 years and um, I can look across the street and there's um, not a native plant in sight. That's, I mean, the only way I could handle this and other uh, difficult realizations was to keep engaged in this way and do what little I could. Um, yeah, so I started being in different shows like um, San Francisco Landscape Garden Show and various Native Plant Society wildflower shows in the spring. And, um, and I started to encounter retail which was a brutal experience for me because it was just answering the same questions over and over and, and then trying to ascertain where people were at so I could best explain a pretty complex concept. So I wrote, you know, a sheet, a handout, one sheet. That was like incredible realization that uh, writing might be a useful tool. At what point does what you're doing become uh, like coalesce for you around this idea of restoration gardening? I started reading um, a writer called William Jordan III, and he was one of the first to talk about restoration. In fact, then I went to a conference and introduced myself to him, and he, and he kind of gave a name to what I was doing, restoration. And um, after that, I started going to meetings of the Society of Ecological Restoration, and but mostly they were talking about public land. And I became really convinced that gardeners who really manage quite a bit of land in this country um, needed to be part of this. This is Cultivating Place. Judith Larner-Lowry is the owner and founder of Larner Seeds, Seeds for the California Landscape, founded in 1977 as a mail-order business and based in Bolinas, California. We'll be right back after a break to our conversation with Judith. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. It seems a particularly apt partnership in conjunction with today's episode with Judith Larner-Lowry of Larner Seeds, Seeds of the California Landscape. Therefore, it is so easy to be excited to share more about the newest initiative of the Native Plant Society, Bloom California, 
This campaign aims to increase native plant sales across the state, transforming our gardens, parks, business fronts, and beyond into native plant habitats. Over 85 nurseries across California have partnered to offer Bloom California native plants. Native plants highlight a beauty and relationship unique to your region. They support wildlife and are climate conscious. Visit bloomcalifornia.org to find a nursery near you and look for Bloom California logos at participating nurseries to discover these beautiful native plants. Hey, it's Jennifer. In the midst of this month of good seed around the country and the world, did you notice that theme of surrendering control came up again this week in conversation with Judith? It's perhaps an important thing to remember as we plan our spring and summer gardens. Where can we make a plan and where can we leave planning to the plants and their seeds and their other friends, the birds and bees and butterflies and trees? It's worth thinking about. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Judith Larner Lowry, founder of Larner Seeds. When we left off, Judith had begun talking about restoration ecology on the home garden scale. As we come back, Judith shares how her writing worked as a secondary support to the mission of the seed nursery. And that one sheet then became one of our, um, I guess you might call them chapbooks or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, in our Notes on Native series, which then became a chapter in my first book. And all of the notes, at, most of them anyway, became chapters in my first book. So this uh, business was like a platform for other things I wanted to do like write and draw and influence people to do what I thought was right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and and I think that description you just gave of of the quiet and people reading speaks to the fact that as gardeners, we want to do the right thing and you know, and and plant blindness is kind of it's we we are inculcated in it, and especially if we have moved to a place that we were not raised, I think it's even easier to have the world around us just be a green blur. And once once you start to recognize these names and faces and friends that are these plants and these ecosystems, you are hungry for the information that you need to. Um, to engage with them. I mean, that that has been my experience in in reading Gardening with a Wild Heart. And, and, and that's not every gardener, but those gardeners that you begin consulting with uh, on how to create restoration gardens, um, they maybe seem to offer you the glimmer of hope that there is a large number of people that want to engage. Yeah, yeah. And that's wonderful. I, I, I really enjoy that and appreciate it. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, Larner Seeds grew, um, you know, maybe from that first, those first seeds you were offering and propagating to maybe it's, its next growth mark and when you started to move into doing consultations? 
keep going with the, the right, story of, right. yeah. Yeah. Um, I started doing consultations pretty early. And I remember that when I lived in Palo Alto, when, when I first started my business, and I would be doing consultations with somebody who had some uh, a beautiful piece of land, and I didn't. <laughs> so it started to be, I needed to move somewhere where I could have my own land, because then mm. I could start experimenting and really learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the other thing that the demonstration garden does, is it it's a experimental test site to see what various species how hard they are to grow, uh, yeah. what they need. Um, and I really like to also grow not just the gorgeous wildflowers, and that's definitely a focus, but tiny, obscure things, because often they are really important pollinators for um, pollinators and other insects. So can you give us an example of maybe some of those early experimentations and some of those tiny things you're talking about? Well, I started out probably by doing the wrong thing, which was I um, I wanted to do a, a huge splashy wildflower uh, display and have people come by and be drawn in. I, I saw the wildflowers as kind of like the PR, <laughs> the way butterflies are for insects in a way. Yeah. Um, so I rototilled. I had it rototilled. And... Uh, uh, somebody who became a good friend of mine was like just horrified because he didn't believe in rototilling. Yeah. But it was a gorgeous display. <laughs> anyway, I think I remember a lot about the Clarkias because mm. where Bellinus is, we're at the northern limit of one Clarkia, Clarkia rubicunda, and the southern limit of Clarkia amoena. Well, Clarkia rubicunda is ruby chalice Clarkia. And Clark Amawena is known as Farewell to Spring. And so I found that very interesting because I would notice in a wet year that we all the sort of north coast plants would do really well. And in a dry year, um, other things would do really well. You know, from, from southern, we are really considered north central California, not north Northern California. Um, so we, I tried to grow a lot of Clarkias, and some of them just didn't work where we are. But I wouldn't mind trying them again. So then, uh, really, from something Craig Drayman mentioned to me, I became really interested in the native bunch grasses. And I know that I, I went on a lot of hikes with a lot of naturalists and none of them knew anything that, you know, that the grasses we were seeing were not the native grasses and that the native grasses were mostly bunch grasses and very, and that coast native coastal prairie had disappeared to about less than 1%. So I started wanting to try that. And what, when I think back on it, I realized that those early experiments with growing bunch grasses didn't work, but now they really work well. And I think, you know, there have been changes in our soil through these okay. years of growing native plants and having mm -hmm. their roots change the soil and interact with the soil. And um, 
I've noticed this with a number of things that I tried early on and didn't work, like um, the California hazelnut. I wanted to have like a hazelnut orchard and they, it just didn't work. And now, you know, they're everywhere. Yeah. And um, I value, you know, those nuts a lot because it's the only nut crop you can really grow on the coast, in mm -hmm. my experience. And they are delicious. Yeah. So at what point you, you start with one piece of land, you, I'm gathering you move to an, another piece of land. At what point does what you're learning, how you're collecting seed, how you're propagating, how you're working with clients, and then starting, um, you know, with the writing that will eventually be the first book in two, that's published in 2000, at what point does what you're doing become uh, like coalesce for you around this idea of restoration gardening? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I started reading um, a, a writer called William Jordan III, and he was one of the first to talk about restoration. In fact, then I went to a conference and introduced myself to him, and he, and he kind of gave a name to what I was doing, restoration. And... Um, after that, I started going to meetings of the Society of Ecological Restoration and uh, was, but mostly they were talking about public land. And I became really convinced that gardeners who really manage quite a bit of land in this country um, needed to be part of this. And so that became my focus. And that leads us, I think, beautifully into uh, gardening with a wild heart, because that's where you really put together. I mean, it, it is essentially a manifesto for native plant restoration gardening, and how you do it and, and why you do it and all the different um, sources for information and knowledge from the plants themselves to the ecosystems themselves to first peoples and um, everything else that you can think of to, to put into your own learning about these plants in these places. And I want to um, circle back to some of the doomsday <laughs> because I, <laughs> I think it's important. Like you have even... 20 years ago when this was published, you had some remarkable numbers behind this idea of the damage we as gardeners actually have done and can do if we aren't careful and we aren't loving and thoughtful in our approach. Um, one of them being that statistic you gave earlier of 85% of all invasive species are those introduced inadvertently by home gardeners. Or intentionally. And yeah, intentionally, but not knowing that they're invasive, right? right? right. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I've, I've never heard a story of someone doing it on purpose, knowing that it was going to... Oh, right. Yes, of course. Well, I say that, and then at the same time, I have to catch myself and remember that our, you know, many nurseries are still selling broom and, uh, yes. mm, you know, nacella tenuissima. And, um, but anyway... I loved this idea, like I underlined it a thousand times, Judith, that we as gardeners, we can, we can find the time and the space to do a little atonement gardening, um, starting with our own gardens. And, and there was something really 
that resonated for me in that. And then you go on to give some beautiful descriptions of the different kinds of native gardens you see and the kind of ideal version being this restoration garden. So this is in chapter three of Gardening with a Wild Heart, and and you talk about these different ways to garden with native plants. And and the first one you talk about are, are when we actually create what what might be seen as a traditional kind of European style garden using native plants incidentally. And then you talk about the collector's garden where, you know, and, and I think all of us have seen gardens like this, where you see, you know, all the salvias or all the buckwheats. Um, and that's, there, there could be tremendous beauty in that. And then you talk about the restorationist and what a restoration garden is. Can you define for people what that is and how it's different than those previous two? Well, I think it's a humble garden um, where the ideas of the land are expressed um, rather than imposing the gardener's ideas. And every situation is going to be different, but it starts with finding a model, something relatively intact that's nearby and in a similar situation. And from that, seeing what is beautiful and trying to recreate it. So you would get your plant list from that and um, your sense of spacing. And um, it just becomes more and more refined as the years go by and new ideas are tried out and may work or may not work. This is Cultivating Place. Judith Larner Lowry is the owner and founder of Larner Seeds, seeds for the California landscape founded in 1977 as a mail order business and currently based in Bolinas, California. We'll be right back after a break to our conversation with Judith. Stay with us. All right, so continuing to think out loud this week, I got some great answers to the seed questions of last week, but not enough to make a whole post. So please tell me, you out there listening and dreaming and gardening and scheming right now, which are your favorite plants to grow from seed? Which are your favorite seed suppliers? Did it surprise you to learn that a majority of Johnny's selected seeds are grown outside of the U.S.? I would love more thoughts on these topics, please. I know you're busy, I know, but hey, people, come on. It's seeds we're talking about here. Send me a note, and thanks to you who did, more on that soon. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Judith Larner-Lowry of Larner Native Seeds, based in Bolinas, California. As we come back, Judith describes more about the restoration garden and learning lab in action that is the Larner Seeds display garden and growing grounds. And your demonstration garden at the current location of Larner seeds. Can you describe that for people as, as visually as possible? Because I think it's, it is, it is the restoration garden in action. 
and it's also a seed growing grounds. So um, one of my uh, staff, Tina Kachin, has um, become really good at growing out seed crops in a very attractive way. So, you know, they're not fields, they're um, beds, or not beds really, but clusters, um, as, and as natural as possible, but still so that we can collect the seed in a reasonably efficient way. Um, so one thing I observed early on was that a lot of the uh, plants that like the coyote bush and the oaks and um, other other plants that that were there formerly and are important parts of the ecosystem are rounded and mounding and that that is kind of a theme because we get you know major winds and um, so I, I think that a lot of things people did that turned into big mistakes had to do with their idea of windbreaks because um, these oaks and the coyote bush in particular are so good at filtering the wind and that's what you want. You don't want it to hit. It's like with fences. You, having uh, spaces between the boards is better so the wind can go through rather than slam into the fence and go up and over. But um, a lot of the Monterey pines and cypresses no longer had any foliage down at the bottom where we are. It was all up at the top as they grew um, much taller than they would have in Monterey and became a real and still are a real problem. Um, so I started to get interested in vegetation architecture. Let's see, I mean, it's constantly changing. Um, I'll describe the, uh, we have the part that is sort of, it's not private at all, but it's where we sit. And there's a huge buckeye um, it's now in bud and soon will be in bloom. And that separates that section of the garden. It's kind of garden rooms. Mm -hmm. um, how, bi how big is it on the current property? It's an acre and a half. And it's uh, it is both the demonstration garden and the seed growing and experimenting as well. Yes, and then we have eighty acres in Mendocino that uh, Mendocino County that are um, where we do a lot of wild collecting. Okay, so it's an acre and a half, and at some sort of central point, there's this large buckeye. It's interesting to hear you say that it's in bud uh, because ours have bloomed oh. and uh, are already uh, going into summer defoliated oh, dormancy. yes, right, right. Yeah, interesting, yeah. yeah. So you have this buckeye and it's some sort of central point. Yes, and um, so then in that particular area, I sort of let myself go into a kind of cottage gardeny kind of with cottage garden using natives. Um, so there are a lot of flowering things and um, the shrubs are also we have, that's where we have our, our container gardens, which I think is really fun to play with containers and, and figuring out what goes with what. 
And I used to do it because we would get just a very tiny amount of some seed, usually mm -hmm. some forb, and we don't want to we don't want to take any chances with it. So we grow them in mm -hmm. containers. But then they it, they turned out it was so beautiful and so kind of mm -hmm. enjoyable to move them around that um, that started being something that I thought would appeal to a lot of gardeners. Yeah, um, I always want to go for the soft sell and never shaming. <laughs> but um, so just to uh, lure people in and. And I, then I saw that Bart O'Brien, who I'd worked at Yerba Buena Nursery with and is now the director of uh, East Bay Regional Garden, Tilden, or it used to be Tilden, um, he also had a huge section of uh, natives growing in containers. So then you don't have to worry about gophers and, um, and you can, and that it, it's part of our grow out process. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you give us an example of a combination that you have in pots this year? Well, we're growing a lot of native bulbs in pots. Um, so we've had quite a bit of camas in bloom for a while. Nice. And um, now the Tritilea is starting. And, uh, one, and there's a really nice perennial called Hosakia gracilis. Used to be something else but anyway um it's called the bicolor lotus or other names that no one no one name seems to really stick but it's a beautiful plant of um and it's low growing and i found the seed in our in Bolinas. there's these what's called the sewer pond lands and that's where sewage is processed but it was once a coastal prairie supreme. And um, so I found this growing in among the, the, Cal the Danthonia californica. But there's a lot, I, I don't know how to say this politely, but a lot of things have been done without a lot of information or ecological perspective that still had positive effects for Bolinas for a long time. Um, but destroying, they, you know, they didn't know that by watering this area that had been a superb coastal prairie, watering it with sewage water would not, uh, lead to long-term survival, but they wouldn't even have, you know, thought about that. And so, uh, beyond the container garden. Oh, yes, I I zooped away from the container because things come and go in the container garden. So one of the, uh, one nice thing that lasts is a, a perennial native clover. I didn't just I didn't start thinking about native clovers until um, I made these bayonet balls with the help of a, a Pomo Indian named Bun Lucas, and I took them to a a big time in the Point Reyes National Seashore and. I offered them to um, a lady, and she said to me, where's the clover? And I was like, oh. So then I started thinking, where is the clover? Because I didn't really know there were native clovers, but they're an extremely important part of the indigenous diet. And um, there are many clover dances and um, 
that was one of the first greens that they ate. So one nice um, plant that grows really well in a container is a perennial native clover called Trifolium wormskieldii. And it, it blooms for months. It's really quite beautiful. Um, and so I started investigating the native clovers and they are tricky because um, about the same time they disappeared, they've almost gone extinct, uh, was when uh, slugs and, no, snails, snails were introduced, non-native snails were introduced to California. So it turns out they really creamed the clovers. Um, but now we use this product that organic gardeners use as well that keeps the snails away um, and it, it's still organic. So we can grow native clovers again, which is pretty exciting because some of them are just exquisitely beautiful. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, we have some beautiful wild ones up here um, that are just, yeah, fascinating to me. And um, the different, as you were noting earlier, the different uh, success of them in different years, like which ones are, are good in dry years and which ones are great in the wet years is, is fascinating to watch. Yeah. So are there more highlights to the garden that you would like to share? Um, well, we, we're doing, we're experimenting with growing Yampa. I don't know if you know that mm -hmm. plant. There's a num number yep. of species yep. and it was a really important food uh, crop. And in fact, I think it's fantastic as a garden, as a native garden vegetable, because um, the foliage is very edible and steamed lightly is delicious. And then it sends up this shoot that looks like an asparagus and the flower stalk, and that's delicious too. And the seeds were, it was called um, anise, wild anise, because it has a licorice mm. taste. So yeah. the seeds have that quality. And then um, in about July, I found that the root is sweet. It's like a sweet carrot. And we have a hard time growing carrots. So I appreciate this. And it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's drought tolerant. And it's just like a, an amazing plant. And, you know, you don't hear that much about it. But we also have an ethnobotanical component. So we're very interested in the native in, you know, native uh, edibles. And do you have, uh, you had mentioned that you uh, had collaborated with a, a Pomo man um, on the, the bay balls. Had you, um, do you have regular consultations, consultations with uh, the, you know, different tribal plants people in your area? Um Sometimes, but he, he died, he passed away and, and it wasn't, we weren't, he was just teaching us, me and a mm -hmm. friend, um, was pretty cool. Yeah. We had, we, he was, he taught us a little lang Pomo language and we had signs up saying Pomo spoken here. He did teach at UC Berkeley as well. And what was his name? Um, Milton and his nickname was Bun Lucas. You know, you, you're, you're, 
your writing arc continues with quite a few of these themes, the idea of restoration gardening, of using your immediate environment um, and the native plants that remain uh, as your guides and uh, native edible plants and, you know, growing to harvest seed so that it's ethical and... um, These are themes that continue in your subsequent books, including the landscaping ideas of jays, and then a couple of books specifically on native edibles. When you, you know, when you look back over these, these many years now, Judith, were, are there kind of universal messages uh, beyond the ones we've talked about? Um, Could you define universal you mean that would apply to other places in California or yeah uh, or 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 just that that have remained kind of true throughout the the range of your career too I think I just like knowing plants in all these different ways and I've always gotten a lot of joy from finding quotes in old books or old texts or old authors that um you know just is incredibly appropriate and makes you wonder oh well they already knew that so what happened (laughs) you know right there were you know especially the arts and crafts movement in california they were very much interested in like the form of the california poppy and using it in architecture and ceramics and dishes and um that's always been very appealing to me just to really immerse yourself in your place in all possible ways. Yeah. When you think about the greatest joys for you in this work, would you have any sort of anecdotes or or stories to share with us about about those how you how you see the greatest joy you get in this? So many joys, one after the other. Um well, I'm really, uh, so there's always, I'm always trying something new. So now I'm doing a, a collection of, um, of seed packets that I've done the drawings for in this wonderful um, Bellina School of Botanical Art taught by Molly Brown. Mm. And um, for a long time, I just was learning the skills she was teaching, and then I wanted to use them. So um, I started because we have a wonderful uh, seed packet producer who will work with me on um, putting original art on these small little packets. And oh, that's great. Um, just I think the constant, the constant um, surprises is something that I really value. They're not always, of course, what I was expecting or even hoping for, but it's all learning. And I think that there's so many lessons about life, life lessons to be found. And, you know, when you surrender some of the control that a lot of garden, some gardeners feel they must have. And, you know, sometimes I fall prey to that as well, because I want people to be drawn in to this field, right? And um, if things aren't looking 
appealing to them, then uh, I feel like I blew it. And sometimes I'll just close the garden to outside people because I don't want to be feeling that. <laughs> you know, I want to just yeah. be back to appreciating it for whatever it will be. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to add about the importance of this work at this time? Well, um, in, introduced invasive species are a huge worldwide problem. And the reasons why that is a problem have to do with coevolution, of course, and the eons that it takes for an insect to learn how to have the capacity to eat a host plant and not die because plants have their protective chemicals. So that takes eons. And so plants that have been here for 200 years are not going to be able to, to uh, be ecologically productive without this shared evolutionary history. And this perspective um, just makes it very clear to me that Natives are the way to go. I mean, everyone, and for everyone, that will be a different set. So people have often asked me, do I think that, you know, it's working? Do I think that people are hearing this? Do I think that um, there are more native plant gardens? And I definitely know there are more native plant gardens because there are more people. So there are also more non-native plant gardens. or are just more gardens. But now I really do think it, its moment has arrived. And I've never really felt that way before. Um, so that's very gratifying and makes me really happy. Well, I will say that when I walk into my local food co-op here in my town and I see Lerner Seeds uh, there at the checkout stand along with, you know, I don't know, organic candy for Halloween or whatever it might be. <laughs> I think that's so great. That is so great. And when I go to my native plant society and we have, uh, you know, the wildflower show in the spring where people have brought in collections with names identified or seeds to share, I think that is so great. And I agree with you. I think it's time has come for a variety of reasons. Um, the, the greatest of which is the joy and beauty and sense of connection we derive from this uh, with one another and with the places that we love. Very well said, Jennifer. I just, I thank you for your work all these, all these years and your uh, sort of, you know, you are a, a seed keeper and a, a lighthouse of, of, modeling how to do this and um, how to keep going at it even when it seems like uh, we're not making the headway we want because it's because of you we we have made the headway we have oh thank you <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Judith Larner-Lowry is the plantswoman behind Larner Seeds. She is the author of several books on gardening with native plants. Her first book is Gardening with a Wild Heart, Restoring California's Native Landscapes at Home, published by the University of California Press in 1909. Her second book is The Landscaping Ideas of Jays, A Natural History of the Backyard Restoration Garden, published in 2007. As such, both her seed and her written work really lay some preliminary groundwork for the ecological gardening precepts we're hearing more and more about from the likes of Dr. Doug Tallamy, whose best-selling book advocating for the use of more and more natives in our home garden landscapes, Bringing Nature Home, was also published in 2007. If there is such a thing as an elder statesman, Judith is such an elder seedswoman. Join us again next week when we have our final in this extended seed series. We're in conversation with Petra Page Mann of Fruition Seeds in western New York State. She is a completely different but similarly passionate new generation seedswoman out to change the world. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. To see historic and current photos of Larner Seeds and Judith Larner Lowry, make sure to check out this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're grateful for tech and web support weekly from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX public radio exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.